will be with the great I am. Oh, what a day that'll be. Oh, praise the Lord. If you have your copy of God's word, go ahead and take it out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. As you're turning there, I, I wonder if you've ever watched a sporting event that just got so out of hand as you're watching it that you decide, since the score is so lopsided, just turn off the game and go to bed, only to wake up the next morning to a number of texts from your friends saying, wow, what a game, that was so amazing, did you see that, did you see the ending, and, and you just realize your first thought as you roll out of bed is, oh no, I missed something awesome, I missed something amazing. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe you go to a movie and uh, you watch the whole thing and leave when the credits start rolling and then you hang out with your friends or you read online that there's some amazing clip at the end of the credits that you didn't sit all the way through the credits for and now you think, oh, I have to go back and watch the movie all over again. Feeling like you've missed out on something, feeling like you've missed something that literally has become something that's been labeled in our society and our culture, right? FOMO, fear of missing out. It makes you feel sad, hopeless, like you've been left out of something amazing. Maybe you've missed something completely spectacular. But my question is, what if it were flipped? What if you knew the outcome of the movie, knew the outcome of that uh, scene at the end of the credits, or knew the outcome of every single sporting event ever? What if you knew the ending of all of those things? How would that change your life? I think about if you knew before they happened what was going to happen in every single sporting event, you can make a lot of very risky bets to the outside world, right? They'd look saying, this is a risky bet, but you would win every single one because you knew. You knew beforehand. What would you talk about? How would knowing the future change your conversations with your friends or your family? This is all just a temporal example of living life and knowing the future, but what if it's on an infinite, eternal level? What if you know the outcome of history, human history as we know it? How would that change your life? If you knew the details of how the world would end, what would change? What would change if you didn't know the details of how the world would end? Today, we're going to see the Apostle John experiencing all of these emotions, all of these thoughts, all of these concerns, all of these questions, and much more in Revelation chapter 4, or chapter 5 in our text this morning. We finished with chapter 4 last week, and chapter 4 and chapter 5 are one vision together, the first half being set up in chapter 4, leading to this incredible vision in chapter 5 in the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let's read it together. We'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning, and then we'll dive in to a, an absolutely amazing chapter in God's Word. Revelation chapter 5, John writes, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one, in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, this is a staggering scene, as if last week wasn't staggering enough. As if being ushered into the throne room of God and seeing the praise that is being given to him who sits on the throne, the creator of all things, as if that wasn't enough to see the glory that's emanating not only from the throne in a way that's totally ineffable, we can't even describe it, but also to see that glory shining off of, uh, mirrored by the elders and the four living creatures. Just the scene is staggering. And yet at the center of this scene, what makes it the most staggering scene in all the world is this lamb. This lamb who is slain, but who was slain and is no longer dead, but standing. Father, I pray that we would stare at Christ. We would see this lamb, that Jesus would be exalted in our view, in our eyes. That our affections for him would be raised because of our time together this morning. That as we stare at who he is and what he has done. That as we hear the question, who is worthy, that we would say, you and you alone are worthy. God, destroy pride in our hearts. Destroy any sense of self-sufficiency or self-reliance. 
God, destroy any sense in our hearts that somehow would view you as not being good. That somehow you are in control of everything, but not in a way that's good, not in a way that's ultimately working for our good. God, I pray that we would practically apply this. We would look at this text and it would be so easy to say, what am I supposed to take away from this? And Father, I pray that we would see so many things that are relevant and applicable to our lives now, in this hour, in this moment. And that, Jesus Christ, we would see you exalted and lifted up and we would love you. We would fall down and worship you. May our response be that of the living four living creatures and the 24 elders and all of creation. So Holy Spirit, be our guide this morning. You love to point us to Jesus and to show us Christ. So we ask that you would do what you love to do. Grant us the gift of illumination. Open our eyes to build wonderful things from your word. We need you because without you, we will not see anything that we are supposed to see. Help us this morning to see Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. This morning we will look at just the first few verses here in chapter 5 because I want to leave the response in chapter 5 that we see from all of these creatures, the elders and the living creatures. I want to leave that till next week, Lord willing. But this morning we will see three breathtaking realities that John will experience. He will experience three absolutely breathtaking realities. And I, I know that I can tend towards hyperbole, but honestly, these are breathtaking realities. These are earth-shattering realities. These are cosmic-changing realities. The first is this. John is going to witness a cosmic challenge. Number one, a cosmic challenge challenge. This is in verses 1 and 2. John will witness a cosmic challenge. Verse 1 says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or literally it's a scroll, written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. So this is a scroll, and the scroll has writing on the inside. If you imagine opening the scroll up, it has writing on the inside, but it also has writing on the back. You could flip it over, and there's writing on the back. There's words everywhere. I want you to notice three specific things about this scroll, okay? Three specific things about the scroll. Number one, this scroll is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Number one, this scroll is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Now, if you're like me, you instantly ask, God does not have a body. So how does he have a right hand to hold this scroll? And in my mind, probably because I have children, I just see veggie tales where you have this body and you have this thing that they're holding with no hands, no arms. It's just floating really close to them. I wonder if that's happening here. Obviously, God doesn't have a body at all. So is there a scroll just floating around? What is the reference here to in the right hand? Well, we have to remember that this is apocalyptic literature. That's the genre we are in. We have to remember that there are things that are given to us as symbols so uh, though the father does not have a body, so therefore he does not have a right hand, this is a symbol, the right hand of power and authority that the king has. Remember, that's what the Pharaoh said about Joseph, right? Joseph is at my right hand. He has all authority and power that I'm granting to him in the Old Testament because I'm Pharaoh and my right hand is a symbol of authority and power. 
That's crucial for us to know because as the contents of this scroll are given, they are crazy. What's going to happen in this scroll is absolutely monumentally destroying the earth, killing thirds and thirds and thirds and thirds of people, exponential death. But we have to know that whatever's going to follow is held in the power of God Almighty. Therefore, whatever's happening in this scroll is under the power and authority of God. There is nothing that's going to happen in human history that is outside of God's control. Secondly, you need to notice that this scroll has writing all over it, front and back, writing on the front, writing on the back. Why is there writing on both sides? Normally, that would show uh, you that the person who owned the scroll, who gave the scroll, was very poor because they couldn't purchase another scroll, so they just wrote all over it. God isn't poor, so that's not what's happening here. The, the second reason why something could be written on the front and the back is because it's a legal document that was so long and the person writing it didn't want it to split it up into two parts because what if one part got lost and we wouldn't have the fullness of the legal document? So let's write it on the front and the back. That's what's happening here in this scroll. This is some legal document that God the Father is holding and there's words all over the place. What kind of a legal document is it? Well, we've seen scrolls like this in the past. In Jeremiah chapter 32, right before God is going to destroy Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes down on a scroll a, a title deed to uh, a piece of land. And he hides it in a field and he tells a relative, I'm not going to make it back here, but when you come back, because God promised to restore Israel, when you come back into the land, come back to this field and grab that title deed, grab that scroll that says you are the rightful owner of this field so that nobody can steal it from you. That's what this scroll is. It's a legal document of ownership. It's a title deed. But the question is, what is the title deed to? What, what is uh, the ownership relating to? And I think that we could simply say it this way. This scroll is a title deed to the earth and to the unfolding of all of human history. God owns this world and God owns how the unfolding of all of human history is going to play itself out. God owns it all. That's why, by the way, since this is the ownership of this earth, and this is the ownership of everything that's going to happen in all of human history, that's why there's so much writing on this scroll. If you've ever signed papers when you're buying a house, you feel like you're signing your life away, right? They just plop this huge stack of signatures, of papers to be signed in front of you, and you're just signing, signing, signing. Basically, what are all of those things saying? You don't own this house yet. You need to make payments, and if you don't make payments, we're going to send you know, dragons to come steal you away and take your firstborn child and na name him Wells Fargo, and like you will not have this house because it's not yours yet. So make payments. That's really what's happening here. Who owns this world? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, God says that currently the prince of the power of darkness owns and rules and operates this world. The devil is in control of this world. Yes, he is controlled by God, so nothing can happen outside of God's control. But there is a very real way that the devil owns and operates whatever he wants to be happening here on this earth. That's why, if you remember the uh, temptations of Jesus, remember Satan says, bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth. 
When I was younger, I thought that's the dumbest temptation ever because Jesus would have just said, I own them all anyway. But it is a real temptation because what Satan is saying is in order to get these kingdoms, they've been given to me now. I own, I operate them, I control them. And in order to get them, you need to go to the cross. So, hey, let me give them to you without going to the cross. I'll give them to you right now without you going to the cross. And if Jesus had said, sure, I'll do that, we would have been lost forever, condemned in our sins forever. So this is a title deed of ownership, not only to the earth, but to all of the unfolding of human history from this point forward. Ezekiel chapter 2, if you could just write that down, there's a, a scroll that is shown in that passage, and that scroll, I believe, is this same scroll uh, on it. The contents in that scroll are how God will reclaim the earth, and that's why Ezekiel says what is written in the scroll. He, he laments over it, he mourns over it, he weeps over it because of the destruction that's going to happen. Revelation chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11, John is going to be told to eat a little book, a little scroll. And as he eats it, it tastes good, but then it's bitter in his mouth. It leaves a bad aftertaste, and he weeps. And the reason why is it's this scroll, this scroll of the unfolding of human history, for human history to unfold and God to reclaim the earth. It's going to be a glorious thing because God's going to reign, but it's going to be an awful thing because of all of the tribulation that's going to happen and the wrath of God being poured out. And then Daniel chapter 7, if we had more uh, we would look there. Daniel chapter 7 through the end of the book, chapter 12. It really looks a lot like chapter 1 of Revelation. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 looks a lot like the book of Revelation. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of the glorified uh, Christ. Uh, he calls him the Ancient of Days. He speaks of the unfolding of the plans uh, that God has for the, the world, that the Antichrist will be slain by the Ancient of Days. And and Daniel doesn't rejoice in that news because he knows what's going to happen alongside of that. He knows all of the people that will be destroyed because of the Antichrist and his rule and reign on the earth. And then Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12 is speaking of the tribulation. It's speaking of the unfolding of these events. And at the very end of the book, as all of these things have been seen, chapter 12, verse 6, Daniel says, okay, when is this all going to happen? How long is it going to take until this happens? And Michael, the archangel, says to him, uh, time, times, and half a time. To which Daniel says, what does that mean? <laughs> I say, yes, thank you, Daniel. Uh, it probably means, we're going to look at it more in detail as we go through the book of Revelation, three and a half years, time is a year, times is two years, half a time, we're adding uh, cumulatively three and a half years together. But Daniel goes, I don't understand what that means. And Michael the archangel says to him, until the end of time, the writing on this scroll will be sealed up. And when it is opened is not for you to know. You don't know it, and I'm not giving it to you because he doesn't know it. That's this scroll right here. I say all this to, to say this scroll, remember how we said early on at the very beginning of our study through Revelation, if you have an Old Testament mind, if you are a Jew who has an Old Testament mind, you know the Old Testament, when we hear of this scroll, you would know exactly what the scroll is. We have to do work to understand what the scroll is. We have to go back and figure these things out. But to an Old Testament Jew, to somebody living even in the early part of the New Testament, you would know exactly what the scroll is. It's been there in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. So, how amazing is it that Daniel says, I want to know what's going to happen, and Michael says, you won't. The unfolding of this scroll is not for you to know and not for you to see. 
And yet we have the privilege of seeing it. Daniel would be dumbfounded that we get the privilege of opening the scroll here in Revelation and seeing what's going to happen. He wanted to see it. We actually get to see it. So this scroll contains the full account of what God decrees and how he's going to reclaim the earth that he owns. It contains everything. It contains the fullness of God's disclosure for the judgment and blessing of the rest of human history. It contains the remainder of all of human history. It contains everything. So number one, it's in God's right hand. Number two, it's written on the front and back. And number three, the third aspect of this scroll that you need to know is it's sealed shut. The scroll is sealed shut. How do you keep a, a scroll closed? Well, you'd either tie a piece of string once you roll it up, or you'd tie a piece of leather once you roll it up, or you could dab a little bit of hot wax and you'd put a seal to say, this is mine, this is my ownership, this is something that is not for all eyes to see, and so if you break it, you're saying that I have authorization to open it and to read it. It would be a way, these seals would be a way of keeping and restricting any unauthorized person from accessing the contents in this scroll. But notice there isn't one seal, there are seven seals. I believe there are seven literal seals, but it's also a representation of completeness, right? Seven is a, a number of completeness. This thing is fully sealed that no one could ever open it. There's only one person worthy to be able to open it. And the opening of these seals, as we will see in chapter six, will begin in motion the unfolding of all of human history, how God will go about reclaiming the earth. So notice this, if this scroll remains sealed, then God does not reclaim the earth, and human history has no end that God is in control over. It isn't that we won't be able to see what will happen in the future if the scroll isn't open, it's that the future itself will not happen if this scroll is not opened. Now, we've read already chapter 5 to know that the worthy one is Jesus Christ himself, and he's worthy because he was slain on the cross and rose from the dead in three days after. Do you realize the cross purchased for you so much more than just your forgiveness? You realize the cross, Jesus is to be praised for the cross, yes, for forgiveness, but to realize there's more to it than just simple forgiveness? It's reconciliation with God. It's adoption of sons and daughters. There are so many things that the cross gives to us, but one aspect of the cross that I just, I don't think we ever think about. Without the cross, human history would have no end that God is in control over. If there is no one who is worthy to take the scroll and open it, this scroll remains sealed, and human history as we know it under God's control doesn't happen. You realize the cross won for us the ending of human history. That's why there's a cosmic challenge, because we know what's in the scroll. We know who owns the scroll. We know who has the scroll. We know what the scroll is about. But then verse 2, a strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open it and to break its seals? Who's worthy? This is the cosmic challenge. Is there anyone in the entire universe who is worthy to open the scroll because if it's not opened the world remains under the devil's control and God does not own the rest of human history a strong angel some commentators say that that's Gabriel because the word Gabriel means the strength of God maybe it is maybe it's not 
I kind of think that they would have said Gabriel said these things, because we're going to see Michael's name in here later, and Michael and Gabriel are typically named, so maybe it is, maybe it's not. We don't need to know. But he cries out with a loud voice. Anybody who can hear him, anybody who is within earshot of his voice, who do you know who's able to take the scroll? Because if the scroll isn't opened, we are all hopeless. John experiences, first, the breathtaking reality of the cosmic challenge. Number two, in verses three and four, he sees the breathtaking experience of universal inadequacy. Universal inadequacy. It begins with the cosmic challenge. Who can open the scroll? And then moving into verses three and four, there is a universal inadequacy. The answer is no one. This is a frightening response. No one can open this scroll. Nobody can take it, open it. Nobody's worthy to be able to do that. Now, it's not about the strength of breaking the scrolls or breaking the seal to open the scroll. It's about the right. It's about the authority to open the scroll. And no one has that authority. No one's worthy. The 24 elders, they can't do it. They bow down and they give their crowns that they know were only won because of God's grace living through them. They give those to God. They couldn't open this. They are not worthy to open this. The living creatures can't. Remember, they hide their faces. They hide their feet. They can't even look at God. They can't even be in his presence without uh, covering themselves. Who's worthy to be able to open this scroll? One question that I ask is, why doesn't the Father just open it? Why is he waiting for somebody else to open it? Because before God the Father goes to war against the world, he needs this scroll to be opened, so why doesn't he just open it? Well, we're not given a specific, explicit answer, but we know that he won't open it. He's holding it, but he's not going to open it. And my take on that would be the fact that man is the one who rebelled, right? Humans rebelled against God. We chose to rebel and to offend him and to live in our sin. And so the destiny lies in how we will respond. How will humanity respond? Will we go back? To him? And the answer is no. <laughs> We've been living this life for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and the answer is no one has ever said, I want to live a perfect life and follow God. That's why no one's able to meet this challenge. Nobody's able to open this scroll. Back to the mortgage analogy, if you have defaulted on your payments, you can't just say, you know what, I want my house back. You're the problem. You stopped paying. You missed the payments. The house has been taken away from you, and you can't just say, no, I'm back. We can't just waltz into God's presence and say, I know we messed up, but we're back. And that's why John weeps. There's nobody able. By the way, I think you could put 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 in here. This is why there is such an enormous stress on Jesus' humanity Obviously, he's God. We know that so clearly in the scriptures. But Jesus is humanity. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He became human to make this decision in everything that he did to not offend God, to not disobey God, to perfectly obey him so that he could take this scroll. The Father's waiting for a man to come and take this scroll, living in perfection, winning a perfect record of righteousness. And there's no one here that can do that. Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly. This is a word for loud and ongoing weeping. He just can't stop. Why? 
because the end of human history is no longer under God's control. If this scroll remains sealed shut, then we have zero hope that God's going to control any aspect of how the world ends. Remember last week we talked about the song sung by the 24 elders about creation, right? God is the creator. Why do they sing that? This is God's world. We sing the hymn, this is my father's world. He owns it. The question now is, will he be able to reclaim it? And this is such an important question. I wonder if you have ever wept with John at the thought of human history being outside of the control of God. What are we going to say to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine? What are we going to say to our brothers and sisters in Russia or China or the Middle East who are currently being beheaded because they love Jesus? If this scroll remains shut, we say we don't know how things are going to end. We don't even know who's going to win. So we're sorry that you have lost your life. But we don't know if it's going to matter. We don't know if it's going to make a difference. We don't know if the gospel wins. We don't know if Jesus is going to win. This is why John is weeping. And brothers and sisters, I wonder, not only have you ever wept with John thinking about that, but I also wonder, knowing what we know that the scroll is opened, knowing what we know that God owns every aspect, every second of human history, knowing that we know those things, can I ask you, have you ever functionally acted like John? Living life as if God didn't own the rest of human history. Living life as if God doesn't know every second of every day and how it's all going to end. Living as if God won't win. I think we, we often live this way, functionally. We would never say that God doesn't own the rest of human history. We would never say these things. But it tends to happen. I tend to hear it around, I don't know, every four years during election time. That if somebody wins, things are going to get so bad that we functionally seem to say that God has abdicated his throne to somebody else. Maybe he won't own it all. Maybe he won't control it all. I think that we should take time to meditate this week on John's weeping, wondering if we do the same thing. Well, there's a cosmic challenge. There's a universal inadequacy. And finally, number three, the third breathtaking experience that John is going to see. I mean, these things are taking his breath away. He sees the scroll that contains all of human history and the title deed to the earth. He sees that no one is able to uh, break the seals and unfold it and live out these plans. And he weeps over it and he cannot be consoled. And finally, number three, he sees the only worthy one. He sees the only worthy one. This is verse five through seven. In verse five, one of the elders came up to him and said, stop weeping. Stop weeping. Don't you know? It's like Eric Clapton taught us, right? There's no weeping in heaven. You don't have to cry in heaven. Why? Why? Does this elder, with such confidence, show up here and say, you don't have to weep. Stop. Because, he says, behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
Lion of Judah, that's a description of the Messiah. It's a title that was given all the way back in Genesis 49 when Jacob was blessing his sons. He said to Judah, the, the scepter will never depart from your lineage. You're like a lion, and a lion's going to come from that lineage. So the Messiah is known as this title, Lion of Judah. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 gives the messianic description of the, the root of David. So these are two huge messianic descriptions. The Messiah, the Lion of Judah, the root of David. It's very interesting, the root of David. Uh, that's the, the root of a plant. But Jesus is also referred to as the, the branch of David, which is just a great reference to his eternality, right? He is the one who begets David, and then he is also David's heir, David's son. That was one of the questions, you remember, Jesus posed to the religious leaders. How can the Messiah be both the one who creates David and then also David's son? How is that possible? The answer is because the Messiah is God. The Messiah is eternal. These are messianic terms. Jesus himself uses this term in Revelation chapter, six, or chapter 22, verse 16. He uses this term when he says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the eternal one. Another way you could say is I'm the alpha and the omega. So this elder says, you don't have to weep anymore. You need to stop. You're acting, John, as if human history has no fulfillment, has no ending. You're acting as if God's not on control, in control. Remember, he's seated on his throne. He's sitting down. He's seated there. He's, he's in control of every moment. So stop weeping because the Messiah has overcome. You remember that word overcome? It's where we get our word Nike, right? It's the Greek word Nico. It's to victoriously reign, to conquer something, and to be victorious over. And so we see this elder saying, you don't have to weep because the lion has overcome. Now, when you think of a lion overcoming, you think of a lion ripping to shreds whatever its prey is, right? It's overcome. It's conquered whatever its prey is. So John, probably thinking, okay, there's a lion that's overcome, this enormous, massive lion that's in heaven somewhere. And yet, verse 6, he turns to see between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. Not a lion. He sees a lamb. Just picture this in your mind. I, I, I know that there aren't words for turning or moving or... We don't even have time and space really here in these verses, but just picture in your mind, John is weeping uncontrollably, just absolutely uncontrollably. He cannot gather himself and compose himself. And then an elder comes over and maybe rubs his back and says, buddy, stop. There's good news. There's a lion who's conquered, which again, in a Jewish mind, John knows exactly who the Lion of Judah is. John knows exactly who the Root of David is. John knows these terms, these Messianic terms. So the elder says the Messiah has conquered, and he, because of his conquering, can open that book. He can open it. John wipes his tears from his eyes, takes a deep, deep breath, deep sigh of relief. Oh, it can be opened. There is an ending to human history that God is in control of. He reigns, he rules, he's king. Now I want to see that lion. And I wonder if there's an interchange here with the elders. Can you show me the lion? Where is the lion? And I just, in my mind, I, I see the elder 
looking over John's shoulder. Have you ever had that moment where you're talking with somebody and then their eyes just kind of move up past you as if they're looking at something and you kind of go, what, what, what are you looking at behind you? I just wonder if, as John hears about the Messiah, he's the one who conquers. I wonder if he says, where is this Messiah? And the elder goes, he's behind you. And John, longing to see the Messiah in all of his conquering glory, he turns and he sees a lamb, a little lamb. Not at all what John expected to see. This word lamb in the Old Testament, every single sacrificial lamb pointed to Christ, pointed to the sacrifice that we needed that only the Messiah could be for us. They all pointed to it, but never in actual explicit reference to him. It was never uh, Jesus or the Messiah is the lamb. The only time that's ever used in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53, where Christ is described explicitly as a lamb, which we sang earlier. Uh, we sang praise to Jesus Christ, the, the lamb uh, referenced in Isaiah 53. In the New Testament, outside of the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as a lamb only four times. But in this book, Jesus is referred to as a lamb 31 times. This is what he's most known for in heaven, being the lamb who was slain. And we see here he's a lamb standing. He's standing, and he's standing at the throne. He's not bowing down in worship at the throne like the elders are. He's not covering his face like the living creatures are. He's standing with authority. He owns this place. And he's ready to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father. But he's standing as if slain. He appears to have been slain. Now, there are no other descriptions of what that looks like. But what could that look like? Well, we know that in the Old Testament, when a lamb was slaughtered and sacrificed, we know what that looked like. I've had the privilege, uh, if you can call it that, because it's a, it's a horrific affair to see, but I've seen lambs be sacrificed. At, uh, the Samaritan Passover, when I lived in Israel for a few months during college, I, I saw what it looked like to sacrifice a lamb. It's disturbing. They have this enormous blade. The, the father figure will bring the family over, will pray over the family. They all touch this lamb, symbolically saying all of our sin is being put onto this lamb. They all touch the lamb. And then this adorable little sheep. The father gets on its back, looks like it's riding it, pulls up its chin and takes this knife and just slashes its throat. There's sounds of this lamb trying to breathe and just sounds like it's drowning in its own blood. Blood is going everywhere, spurting because of the heart beating, and it just crumples down onto the ground. It is horrific. There's blood everywhere. So somehow John says, this lamb has had that happen to it. I don't know what that looks like, but John knows. Now, obviously in heaven, we know that Jesus bears the marks of his death 
We know in his hands and his feet there's nail-pierced scars. We even sing about that. Crown him the Lord of life. Behold his hands and side. But here, John doesn't see nail prints, nail marks. He sees a lamb that has been slaughtered. Maybe mottled blood around its neck. Maybe a huge scar where hair can't grow back. Maybe there's even a little bit of this being slain and slaughtered in the way that the lamb walks. But some way, John knows this lamb's been slaughtered. And yet, though this lamb has died, this lamb stands. He died, but he's alive. He died, but he's victorious over death. He died, but he's no longer dead. And that's the paradox of how God wins, right? The lion of Judah conquers. How does he conquer? How does the lion conquer? The lion conquers by destroying its prey. Jesus conquers by being destroyed. Jesus conquers by giving down his life, laying it down. His conquest has been won not through killing, but through dying. And so therefore, he is the rightful and only worthy one to take this scroll. Every soul that's there represents a human who has died. All of these elders are humans who have died. They died and they did not raise themselves back to life. Every angel that's in heaven has never died. Jesus is the only one in heaven who has died, raised himself from death, and has conquered and overcome. And notice he has seven eyes and seven horns. Seven horns references being all-powerful. A horn is you know, the business end of an animal, right? So this is all-powerful. And seven eyes, the Holy Spirit being sent out into the earth, and the, also the omniscience of the Lamb. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's powerful. Once again, this is language from the book of Daniel. This is language from Zechariah 3 and 4. This is language that to an Old Testament reader who knows it, who has studied it, they'll, they'll easily say, well, I know what a horn represents. I know what the eyes represent. They've even seen this imagery before in the Old Testament. Perfect in power and knowledge. Verse 7, and he came and he took the book. He doesn't ask for it. He doesn't wait for it to be given to him. He won it. He takes it. It's his, rightfully his. He takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And the father allows him to take the scroll, which is the father's endorsement of this lamb. It's the Father's approval. It's as if, as we've said before, on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And here the Father is saying, yes, it is. This is yours to take because you've conquered. You're worthy. And now, because this scroll is in the hands of the Lamb, human history has an end point. God will reclaim the world again. It will be his and everything that has ever gone wrong will ultimately be judged. Everything that has ever happened to you personally, that you've wondered, God, why are you allowing this? It will be made right. Our brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution, they die clinging to the name of Christ, saying he's better than life itself. 
And because Jesus holds that scroll, we say with them, amen and amen, he is worthy. He's better than life itself. Because he owns this scroll, he holds this scroll. We can say, come what may, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He takes the scroll, and when he does, verse 8, all of heaven rejoices. I mean, they cannot even hold it back. They can't, they don't need somebody saying, now's the time to sing. They just see Jesus take the scroll and they say, he is worthy. They worship him. By the way, Jesus receives that worship. He does not say, stop worshiping me. He receives that worship. It's incredibly informative for uh, dealing with false religions that say somehow Jesus is not God. If Jesus were not God, then he would not take this worship because God alone is to be worshiped. But because he is the lion and the lamb, he is the Messiah and he is God, he receives this worship as the one who has overcome. Who is worthy? The cosmic challenge is given. Who is worthy? Universal inadequacy is seen. No one's worthy. There's no one who can take that scroll and open it. Until the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, stands up and says, I can take it. There's only one worthy one. And therefore, we would do well to respond the way that these creatures in heaven respond. Who is worthy? He alone is worthy. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your amazing kindness in giving us the unfolding of this scroll, giving us this moment here in our service to pause with John and to realize what a disaster this world would be if you were not in control, if you did not own all of human history, what a disaster it would be, how hopeless we would be. Just like John weeping, we would be hopeless if you didn't own all of human history. But you do. There is one who is worthy. And God, we want to adore him this morning, the only worthy one. Father, as we listen to this song, as we meditate upon its lyrics, as we, as we think through the profound implications of the words that we've just read, we've just heard preached, and now we get to hear being sung. Father, I pray that you'd stir in our hearts a desire to see Christ adored in the hearts of those around us, in the hearts of those in our neighborhood, our community, that do not know that there is hope, that do not know the confident assurance that the Lamb has overcome. So, Father, grow in us affections for Jesus, even as we listen and meditate to this song. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior, the only worthy one. Amen.
Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all? Well 